Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a miracle made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver infused fabrics that actually make temperature regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not like getting too hot or too cold or whatever, you know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it like doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But more than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful. And it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made, come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation at the checkout and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today, you'll get 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation. And Miracle's so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Fake the Nation, episode 197. <laughs> I, I didn't know. Oh yeah, are we clapping? I think are since, we since on the basically one? since fourth grade, I've never been sure of whether it's three, two, one, clap or three, two, clap. Yeah. Yeah. What is? Is it three? T- is it rock paper scissors shoot or rock paper go? Going live in three. Oh, okay. okay. Two, Here we go. One. Hello, hello. This is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about politics, and where we rejoice because it's Ramadan. I'm your host, Nikin Farsad, and Ramadan Kareem, you guys. For Muslim listeners out there who normally fast, my question is, are you fasting? Some people aren't because it might, you know, make the immune system weaker. Um, And, you know, so uh, what are you guys doing? I'm just so curious. Um... Also, I've said this before, I say this every Ramadan on Fake the Nation, but I feel like fasting gets all the hype. But Ramadan is really about spiritual reflection, prayer, doing good deeds, and spending time with family and friends, um, and just like generally being a good shit, you know what I mean? So uh, that's what Ramadan's about, and I feel like we can all do a little Ramadans, you know what I mean? When it's really about those things. Uh, today, (laughs) my two, uh, I have two Muslims on the podcast. (laughs) Honorary. Um, today. It's that easy? uh, You just say honorary and we're in? (laughs) And that's it. Yeah, that's how it works. We're in. 
Uh, today we're going to talk about the opposite of uh, all the good things that Ramadan is about. Um, we're going to talk about the politics of coronavirus. We're also going to talk about the uh, status of immigration policy. And we're going to talk about the Swedish model. And we're going to talk about Tiger King. Um, again, all like the most non-Muslim, non-Ramadan spirited show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I am so excited by the honorary Muslim panel today. Uh, you've seen her as a comedian uh, on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. She is a fantastic stand-up that I've had the pleasure of seeing perform live 500 times. And each <laughs> of those 500 times, I fucking enjoyed the shit out of it. Uh, she's also the co-host of the podcast, Were You Raised by Wolves, uh, which recently appeared on the LA Times. No big deal. And she's my friend. You guys, it's Leah Bonima. Hey, Leah. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Happy Ramadan. Oh, thank you. Um, by the way, I don't fast. I don't make mean to confuse that. I generally don't fast. Uh and I, but I am curious about those of you guys who are who normally do fast and choosing not to because of the, the thing. So let me know. The other person on the panel is oh my god, he's a podcast host. You've heard him on many multiple things. He's also the he was the producer of the Thirty for Thirty podcasts forever, which were huge, are huge. Um, he is now. Just launched a new podcast called This Day in Esoteric Political History with Radiotopia, which I'm sure is going to be fantastic because everything he touches is actually fantastic. That's the truth. You guys, it's Jody Avergan. Hey, Jody. Hello. It's nice to be back. I'm bummed not to be in the normal studio where I can write I, my name on the table. Do people know about that uh, tradition? I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's that. been mentioned on the show, yeah. but there is a table on which people sign their names yeah. uh, every time they join the show. And it's fantastic. I've I've written my name on the wall of the closet in which I'm recording this, just <laughs> well, in honor of that tradition. <laughs> yes. um, you know, keeping the fake the nation spirit alive yes. in closets across America. <laughs> um, oh, I want to also point out to listeners, we... The, we talked about whether or not I am allowed to say the term you guys <laughs> in like two episodes mm. ago. And I forgot to mention last week, we had an overwhelming response from people about this question. And the um, the overwhelming response was that, yeah, I should continue to say the term you guys and that it is a non-offensive, gender neutral term. Um, that is, uh, oh, baby's coming in the room. There's <laughs> some object in here that she forgot and mm-hmm. she's out of the room. Um, okay. <laughs> so baby like... Super speed? That was amazing. Uh, yeah, it happened. Well, there was a there was a man carrying oh, I see. Okay. some stranger was carrying the baby in and out. I saw the shadow. Um, <laughs> um and we so anyways, uh for thank you for those of you who responded. It is actually maybe the most response I've ever gotten from a podcast segment. It was the you guys debate. Uh, thank you for, for weighing in. Um, and maybe there are some people out there who are like, fuck, I didn't weigh in, but I'm totally against it. Please let me know. I'm still here. I'm still here. Um, and also if it's, if it sounds like ocean waves in my apartment, that's because there's something wrong with the heater. The super has to come in and fix it. So there might be the sound of ocean waves, uh, uh, underscoring my participation in this podcast. (laughs) All right. Are you guys ready? For topic number one. Yes. Okay, then (laughs) let's get into it with topic number one. 
Uh, some Americans, not in New York, but in other states like Michigan, Colorado, and Virginia, are protesting the lockdowns. Are they the Rosa Parks of COVID-19? <laughs> um, do you, what do you think? I mean, the, basically, they're saying that, that uh, the lockdowns are an overreaction. What do you say to that, Jody? Um, look, I think that there is going to be fatigue and pushback against the policies um, around the COVID crisis. That's inevitable. Um, this particular brand of pushback and this particular kind of protest seems um, inauthentic, a little ginned up. I think there's been some really interesting reporting about how it's following many of the same patterns as the Tea Party. Um, it's also sort of scrambled in interesting ways because obviously there's a Republican president and a lot of these governors that they're protesting are Republicans as well. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, this feels like, um, and we've seen this script over and over again in this country, you know, a quote unquote grassroots movement that is a little fishier. That said, like, I do think at some point, and maybe this is the first like weird, awkward kind of moment to, to, to sort of get our heads around it. We are going to have serious questions in this country about pushback to these policies. Every time this country has tried to do it before, there's been pushback, um, authentic, inauthentic, good faith, bad faith. And so, you know, it's time to start grappling with what that what that looks like and, and what it means. But, you know, and these I, protests give me, you know, set off every like red flag for me in in the world. And I want to point out um, before we hear your reaction, Leah, that that, you know, there is a question of like how these pro protests got off the ground, who is behind them. And and it's a weird question because every protest that has ever happened has been organized yeah. by people. Right. So like there is going to be some organizing force, whether that's nefarious or not, you know, remains to be seen. But just to you know, for clarity's sake, there's a law firm led partly by former White House officials that is behind these protests. There's a network of state-based conservative policy groups behind these protests, um, an ad hoc uh, coalition of conservative leaders that are calling themselves Save Our Country um, that are behind these protests, and some of whom are on the White House Advisory Committee on Reopening the Country. <laughs> so there are people advising the White House on reopen on how to reopen the country that are behind people protesting um, the slow reopening of the country. So, uh, or, you know, what they deem slow. So, so there are, those are the forces that we're, we're talking about. That doesn't mean that there aren't actual grassroots people who believe that we should reopen. Yeah. Leah, what do you think? I immediately thought of, do you remember during Katrina when there were those people out kayaking um, and everybody was I like, I don't remember were, this, but okay. These people were like, it's my right to go kayaking in this storm. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, I'm happy for you to go kayak and we can lose that string of genetics, but it's the people that are going to have to go <laughs> get you. You know what I mean? It's the right, first right. responders. It's the doctors. It's everybody that's going to have to go out there and save your butts. Um, so unfortunately it's like, it affects everybody where, we have to function as a group and it's not that, you know, people are like, oh, they want to go out there and kill themselves. That's fine. It's like, it's not fine because they're going to affect so many other people's lives. Um, so that's my 
my, I'm, you know, people, I understand getting antsy yeah. and being like, we need to reopen businesses, but it's like, you're just going to have to hang in. And unfortunately we have a government that has a history of not respecting science in any way. Right. I, okay. So my take on this is that the protesters are actually protesting, um, the lack of so- of a social safety net. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what they're protesting. They're not actually protesting the lockdown and they just haven't made the connection because if we had a real social safety net, if we had maintained um, employing people and that government money was going to go to employers to just keep people on payrolls, people would not feel so um, anxious. They wouldn't feel so, you know, left afloat with nothing. If we had universal health care and people were like, well, you know what? I can always go to the hospital if something happens. People would not feel the need to protest the fact of the matter. And, and I understand these are conservative groups who don't believe in big government. But guess what? I think when you have a social safety net that's saving you, you are not out there protesting it in a global pandemic. You know, so I think that's what's happening is, and I really wish, you know, we could just spin it that way. It's just that what's happening is we're we're protesting the lack of a real social safety net, um, the kind that puts people's mind at ease. Uh, people's minds are not at ease because they can't file for unemployment because the websites are down still. The, the phone banks are busy still, you know. There's so many. People still haven't gotten stimulus checks that they were promised. Uh, some people have. Some people haven't. So these are all reasons why people, I think, are just like, oh, my God, let me just work so I can ha- get that money. If if we had a social safety net that was function and that was designed to function during times of crisis— I think we wouldn't have these kinds of protests. You know so, what I mean? But Nagin, if if you're if what you're saying is right, then why are we not seeing protests in the South Bronx? Why are we not seeing protests in Milwaukee? Why are we seeing protests right. from you know what you're saying kind of reminds me of this whole economic anxiety conversation that sprung up yeah, around yeah, Trump yeah. voters and then, you know, a realization that, well, actually many Trump voters are are affluent and disconnected from a lot of these yeah. economic anxieties and are doing these more this more out of Racial, class, uh, you know, constitutional reasons. But I mean, I don't know. These protests don't strike me as people who are worried about their next paycheck. They seem a little more or, or, you know, again, why are we not seeing these uh, um, spring up among people who are really being hit and are really having all the problems that you're. No, no, you're you're you're, in. And I think that that I mean, that also goes to who's organizing the protest. Yeah. That also goes to the states where these things, you know, are going to have more currency. These kinds of protests are going to have more currency. That's not New York. And they're just not seeing as much death Yes, in those states. They're not seeing as much death, right? We're seeing the crazy numbers that we see in New York City. And I think that ha- has a different psychological impact on people. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know what I, mean? I think the people that really need the social safety net are staying at home because they have um, immune issues or there is somebody that's in a, a job that's, uh, that they have to go to work because their yeah. family can't be fed. Yeah. Right. I mean, I would say I'll, this is in this is one example of, I think, something we're seeing just all across, which is how. There was this initial notion that, oh, this is something that's going to touch everyone. And I think to some extent that's true. It's just slightly different. But I also think it is more than anything just 
bringing up and sort of showing many of the same class and economic divides that exist in this country. Um, and that these protests are another, you know, help to continue to illustrate that there's a there's a little bit of a disconnect between the people who are protesting and the people who are actually affected by the COVID crisis, both as a disease and the economic fallout. That's not to discount you know, all the arguments about what happens when we shut down our economy for so, for so long. But um, I do think that there's, I don't know, it just feels like there's a divide between what's being protested and what's actually happening. Leah, what about uh, Donnie here? Um, how is Donnie helped by these protests uh, or hurt or whatever? I assume you mean uh, Donnie Wahlberg. Um <laughs> <laughs> President of the United States, Donnie Wahlberg, my, yes. My favorite of the Donnies. I, <laughs> you know, uh, I think he's helped because he he's making this a show. You know what I mean? He's like, I got the yeah. biggest ratings every night. Here's my people. You know, he can make it about something else instead of being like, oh, I was two months behind on this. I completely missed the boat. I fired the people that could handle this. Instead of having that conversation, he gets to incite a quote unquote riots, I would say, with the word liberate in it, it, it switches the conversation yeah. to, you know, his people. Yeah, um, it feels like, you know, part of this feels like a way for him to rally without him rallying, without him having actual rallies. Yeah. And I mean, I bet we've been saying that about the press briefings from the beginning, and now we actually have people on the street essentially holding rallies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he's I think he feels in his comfort zone because of what he saw in 2016, you know, when he's ginning up a crowd. I mean, that's where he feels like he's at his best and he thinks that's his best chance. It also, you know, I will say though, also allows him to do something that he's very good at and very consistent at, which is just playing to every side of an issue. Um, right. And so he gets right. to hold briefings where he props up scientists and he gets to uh, on the one day tweets, you know, liberate these states and then the other and then the other day criticized as he did yesterday, criticize the governor of Georgia for opening too early. He gets to gin up the rallies while he gets to then act. You know, I mean, he just he's a front runner and he yeah. often runs, you know, five different parallel races uh, at the same time. Uh, and <laughs> right. you know, that's, uh, he's, that's like, his he's, he's very good. Um, he's very consistent at being inconsistent. And that, I think, is the scariest fucking thing well, because sure. in the press briefings, he'll say, well, I think uh, I'm I'm worried that Georgia's opening up too soon because, by the way, the state of Georgia's opening up uh, tomorrow, um, like fucking hair salons and tattoo parlors <laughs> or whatever. And then and now, like on Sunday Vegas. or Monday. And, right. And now Vegas is trying to open up the casinos without a plan. Anyway, it's fun. Um, so I think that's like really sc- the, this inconsistency has real health consequences. And it's so fucking scary because I think if you're listening, if you're li- reading the tweets and he's like, liberate Michigan, and then you're hearing the press conferences like, I don't know if Georgia should be reopening. And then we, you know, and Fauci and Burks are up there being like, we really don't think people should be reopening, you know, and that it, and then um, and then you he- see the protests that are like, let us out. Like these things are all at odds and they're all being like you said, Jody, supported by fucking Donnie, who um is again not letting there be any kind of consistency to the federal response. That's what's basically happening. My last question on this, and um, is not specifically related to this, but I just want to, we talk about it every week. 
what what is the political what political use is it? I'm just I'm honestly asking. I don't have an answer. What is the political use behind Donnie not getting behind more testing and like putting it off onto the states? Like why would what is the point of that? Hmm. Just politically, assuming he doesn't give a fuck about anything but politics. I have the same question. I mean, it's baffling to me. <laughs> it's um, baffling. I mean, you know, oh, here I have. A, I've. I'll, I'll. I'll say I have the same question. I have one possible answer, but you know, the, okay. I mean, it's. It is true that like, you know, you could see a scenario in which you know the what was the 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 we're going to go to the moon in ten years kind of moment. You could say yeah. like we're going to test every American in the next six months and just like rally around that and have. And I agree, it's like an easy political win, and it just seems like you know, people are watching that pitch or whatever. It's hard when you look at that and say, why is no one doing that? It's hard not to slip into some sort of conspiratorial thinking about, well, if there's more testing, it shows that this is more widespread and the more you know. And, you know, this whole thing has been an exercise in the perils of data. And um, that, I mean, I don't know. So that's the, you think that's just like it doesn't, he doesn't want the numbers to be higher. Right. And I mean, you know, part of, part of me is because, you know, and that's not just pop psychology about the president. I mean, he actually said that he one of the very first things he said about coronavirus was like, I don't want to let those people off the cruise ship because it'll raise the numbers. And that doesn't right. that's not good for me. So True. I mean, there is evidence that he that there is that sort of calculation going on. Leah, jump into Donnie's brain and tell me why he's doing this. <laughs> Can you imagine as a side note jumping into his brain? You'd be like, what the fuck? It's just like fried chicken and like. (laughs) Um, But I I absolutely agree with that. I think it just comes down to the fact that he doesn't want the numbers. And then he can also be like, oh, that wasn't me. You know what I mean? You know, he just switches the states. That was the states. I said up top. I really feel like he just doesn't want the numbers out there. It's like when you don't want to get on the scale and you can tell yourself that you still weigh 155 pounds when everything around you is like, obviously you don't, but you don't get on the scale. So it's like (laughs) Schrodinger's cat. Do I or do I not? He doesn't want people to know that like however many so many more people have this and it, it right. technically we don't really until they have the facts. So he can just live in this. He really doesn't like facts uh, across the board from the beginning. And why would he want more facts now? And the, But the crazy thing again there is we already have the highest caseload in the world yeah. So what's another larger number? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you already lost, buddy. You already lost. You know, we already have the highest number of cases in the world. We outpaced China. Fucking congratulations, you did that. You know what I mean? It can't. It's like let it. I, I don't know. I mean, right? I, I, it's it's he's arguing for numbers that are marginal at this point. You know what I mean? Anyway. Listeners, what do you guys think? It's baffling. What do you think should happen? Do you agree with the protesters? And by the way, I want to show a note of sympathy. I understand why they're protesting. You know what I mean? I get it. I fucking get it. Uh, It sucks being out of work. Um, It's dangerous. It's scary. It's so scary. Uh, So let me know what you guys think. I'm so curious. Let us take a break. Let's take a break. Listen about our sponsors because we love our sponsors because they keep the lights on here at Fake the Nation. So let's support them. And then we come back. We're going to talk about other things. 
Today's show is sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending. It helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I have used Rocket Money. And you guys, honestly, I had no idea how many things I was subscribing to that I didn't want to be subscribing to. I think we all go into, we enter into subscriptions with a Pollyanna view that we're going to use as a subscription, even though it's a super obscure, you know, education app from Albania that uh, teaches Russian math or whatever. And then you're like, I'm never going to use this. Why did I get it? I should remember to cancel it. And then you don't. And I know you guys are like me and I know you've done this to yourselves. And guess what? 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about. So we're all in this bucket. And I think paying for that stuff is so angering and Rocket Money is there to help. Because basically Rocket Money shows you, hey, look at this is what all the things you are subscribed to. But then here's the bigger thing. To unsubscribe, you don't have to go through the whole rigmarole. Rocket Money unsubscribes for you with a click of a button. It's so easy. The other thing Rocket Money did for me, which I was incredibly grateful for, was reduce the cost of one of my bills. It was my cable bill. Yes, I still have cable. Rocket Money has over 5 million users that have saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I mean, that tracks for me and for the number of things I was paying for that I'm frankly ashamed of. So thank you, Rocket Money, for like fixing the shame glaze on my life. Uh, so stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Again, that's rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation, you guys. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And we are back, and we're ready for topic number two. So Donnie is using this global pandemic as an excuse to give all Americans access to universal health care. I'm kidding. He's using this pandemic to implement some of his shitty immigration policies. He's been after legal immigration since the beginning of uh, his presidency. And he um, this week, he halted the issuance of green cards for at least 60 days, citing coronavirus. Does this make sense to you guys, Leah? 
Um, it makes sense to me. And as far as that, he wants to keep his people on board and he's like, Oh, some of my people have probably lost jobs and are getting sick. And I want to remind them why they love me. And that's because we hate immigration. So I feel like it makes sense as far as, uh, sticking to what he, yeah, he does best. Jody. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's, there's a number of things going on here, but one of them is definitely immigration is the core issue that riles up his base. And it's been a while since that has been activated. Um, and, you know, you saw the Trump campaign uh, fundraise off of this immediately the next morning, sending out emails, um, you know, based on a tweet. Um, and we should make it clear that so far what we have, right, is just a tweet and a, and a sort of indication that we're going to do something. We'll see how it plays out. A lot of Trump's sort of especially around immigration, a lot of his sort of bold statements have then ended up in, you know, mired in, in court proceedings. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's where you have to start. You have to think of this as something that 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 is about, you know, red meat for his base. I will also say, though, that uh, it's been a long-term strategy of immigration critics, people who want to curb immigration, to do quote unquote temporary measures and uh you know the the there's there's memos from far-right groups going back decades saying basically you know the way to do this the way to make this palatable is to start a temporary measure and it's much harder to roll back a temporary measure than it is to try and get a permanent measure through and so you just go step by step and so you know we are potentially seeing a little bit of that strategy playing but i think it's more that like i don't know Stephen miller got in trump's ear and 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 got him hyped up and then he went and he sent a tweet you know, and I should also point out about that tweet. So the tweet was like, I'm halting immigration or something. It was a little bit vague. And then it it turns out, so what he's really doing is he's halting the green issuance cards. of green cards for 60 days. And then, but he's not halting temporary visas. The temporary workers are still going to be allowed to work. And part The reason for that is because the business community was like, um, dude, like we actually need the temporary visas uh, for our businesses to function. Um, he's gotten in trouble in the past for for the temporary guest worker program um, being halted or whatever, like being threatened. Um, and the the president of the National Farmers Union, uh, you know, said to halt the the temporary workers visa program. Quote adds. Uh, to an already would just add to an already f- stressed food system. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so there's like actual great reasons not to do that. But I think the other weird, th- I mean, I think, you know, Leah, you're, I totally agree with you in that, like he's halting, you know, these green cards. First of all, there wasn't terribly much activity going on in terms of immigration because yeah. it's just not yeah. the best time. <laughs> it's not the best time. Um, and then uh, I think the other thing is um, he, you know, it was, a, but it it's a sign to his base that I'm still anti-immigration, even in the middle of coronavirus. I'm a strong man who's against, who's against immigration and I'm always working on it. Um, so don't worry, I haven't lost my edge. Uh, it's, it's again, it's a, it's a campaign rally moment as opposed to having anything to do with the pandemic, even though the stated reason, his stated reason is Americans should get those jobs. Immigrants should not get those jobs. Um, and that would be, I think, a very strong argument for people who think that immigrants are taking their jobs. Um, again, no one, there are no jobs <laughs> so right now. So like, this is kind of not, 
an issue. Um, but, uh, but I think, but I think you're right. It's just, uh, a gross Stephen Miller got in his ear or like the campaign was like, you know what we need? We need a little bit more of the red meat, um, to throw to the base about immigrants. Here's a good one because it doesn't affect very much right now. Uh, you know, a whistle without a whistle. I mean, there is without a thing happening. Yeah. I mean, it's not a dog whistle. It's a, it's a bullhorn or it's an air horn or whatever, but, (laughs) but you know, it is also, um, I think there is a little bit of consistency and maybe substance isn't exactly the right word, but you know, I think closing borders, it has been a consistent refrain of this administration in response to almost any single problem. And it's, and it's clearly a red meat, you know, fire up the base thing, but it is also, I think there's some philosophical consistency there, um, if that's the, the way to put it. Um, and I, But I just think, you know, by all accounts, the, the China ban, um, travel ban, didn't seem to do much of this virus. Every time we figure out more about how it got here, we realize it was here earlier and earlier and earlier than we thought. Um, and this in, in, as well, I don't think, you know, I don't think this is the way to attack the quote unquote invisible enemy, as he puts it, um, is through closing borders. But that is just, you know, it's it's like the the consistent answer to almost every problem for this. Yeah. And it's it's uh, it's it's like what, you know, um, a country like Sweden will do with their pandemic versus a country like um, Turkey or Brazil, where they double down on. Um, on being strong men and having authoritarian rule. So it's it's kind of like this is the Donnie's equivalent to the like Bolsonaro, uh, for example, sure. um, response. Which brings me to our next topic. Uh, topic number three. Today is a four-topic day. What? I know. It's so exciting, you guys. <laughs> topic number three. Sweden's approach. Uh, Sweden, like Norway, is one of those non-shithole countries that Donnie wishes we had more immigrants from. But they're handling this global pandemic very differently. Schools are open. Cafes are open. They're letting peeps roam around. Uh, they are aiming for herd immunity. And and they're still doing social distancing. But it's based mostly on self-regulation. What do you guys think of Sweden's approach? Uh, Leah? I think... This calls back to what you said previously about why you think people uh, is at the heart of what people are protesting. Um, Sweden's approach, I feel, is based so much on how Sweden is already set up that they could yeah. have that approach. Everybody has a healthcare base. Um, there is a social safety net. Um, it's you know not as big as right. So it's their approach is so tailored to what they already have in place that I couldn't, it's not a thing where I could think of it as what if we tried that, you know, we can't try that because of a myriad of reasons. Um, a lot of them involving our healthcare system and economic backup, but you know, so I think it's so specific to Sweden that maybe it can work there. But also I noticed in the articles, they'd be like, you know, they have less numbers than Italy and Spain, but they also still have more numbers than the Scandinavian countries, which is the countries they should be being compared to. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, I think there is some evidence over the last few days or week that it it might not be working as well as they hoped um but i do but i do think these questions about um both the safety net in sweden and the sort of economic and healthcare structures but also there's just a through line of trust in government and when you read about the way that 
the policies in Sweden have been implemented, I think they're based on a kind of understanding among the people that our government is acting in good faith, that there's a sort of moral framework around some of the decision making. And, you know, we we lack that in this country um, for for a number of reasons, not just about the last four years, but for the last several decades. And so, you know, to some extent, I will say in this country, I've been surprised at how much we've rallied, given how much distrust there is in government, how much skepticism there is about expertise and so forth. Um, but I think in Sweden, you see that people, it, it appears to be that, okay, there's a plan. Now we'll see if it's the right plan or the wrong plan, but we are going to you know, trust our government. We're going to listen and so forth. I mean, the other thing to point out is that, yes, there's a more quote unquote lax uh policies about closing a business and so forth. People are still social distancing by all accounts. You know, most movie theaters are completely empty. People right. are keeping their distance. And so I think that goes, that again ties into just this understanding, this collective understanding that we have to do this together. And there are some sort of agreed upon facts and procedures, whether they are directives or not, uh, you know, we are, we're going to sort of take on what it, what, it, what we need to do in order to to tackle this thing. Whereas in this country, that didn't happen until the government said you have to do X, Y, and Z. People were not doing it sort of voluntarily or out of some spirit of, of a, you know, communal understanding or something. Right. And I, so I want to point out a couple of, uh, you know, facts that they've laid out about why this works in Sweden. Leah, you mentioned like they have a much better healthcare system. They um, manage, they, they at no point worried about like not having enough medical equipment or hospital capacity that was like just never an issue they were able to set up set up emergency care facilities around the country that have mostly remained empty because they've just like had an existing system that didn't need as much um i just want to say and i know the sweden's smaller and i know that they uh, and and i know that they are just completely different it's hard to compare sweden to the united states but we're the richest fucking country in the world right and it's embarrassing that we don't also have that i'm just gonna say that for the record i'm embarrassed okay i'm blushing with embarrassment um but also more than half of swedish households are single person which was that surprising to you guys i like didn't think i for some reason i thought sweden would have more families uh just because they have they also have more like um child care and shit like that so i think I, I you know you would just think people would be fucking popping out them kids and there'd be a lot more um family household but no more than half the households are single hmm. person so it makes social distancing so much easier also this is another thing more people work from home already more than anywhere else in europe which i thought was interesting and they already have all of them have access to fast internet, which we don't have, right? So our internet is so different community to community. Um, it makes it harder for us to have, you know, uh, to work from home, to have remote learning, all of that shit. So much more, so much more difficult. Uh, so those are some of the reasons why Sweden is, um, is, is, is better at it. And yeah, I mean, I think the the trust in government piece is huge because I was looking at Iran. I mean, Iran, part of the reason things got out of hand in Iran is because the government was like, you guys, this is a big deal. You know, take all these precautions. And the people were like, yeah, but you guys lie to us like all the time. So are you lying to us right now? And that's what happens, I think. Um, And in in the case of the United States, 
it's, you know, Donnie was saying one thing, health experts were saying another thing. We just had no consistency in message for a very long time, and we still lack it in many respects. So it's hard to develop a trust in government when there is no consistent voice from the government (laughs) and when your whole life has been like, I wish government would do something for me because I lost my job and my health insurance. Oh, they're not going to do anything for me. Oh, I'm struggling. No one cares. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, So that makes it very difficult. Do you... um, and I, and I and I I guess my question is you know you mentioned nine, movie attendances down by like ninety percent in Sweden, so even if we did have even if things were even if we were going for the Swedish model, and like you might say something like Georgia is going for the Swedish model right they're opening things up, um, they're asking people to be safe about it. Uh, does it matter? Because people are still going to be scared anyway. Like, what do you think is going to happen in Georgia? I think people are going to go out and get sick. (laughs) (laughs) Or, well, you know, conversely, they'll definitely not go out um, because they're scared. And I think some people won't go out. I think some people won't go out. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think on balance, more people will get sick because... We're just not, you know, we just don't have a clear line from yeah. the government about the danger. We don't have a way to, you know, if we, everybody had antibodies tests and everybody had a test, we could let people out. They've had it. They haven't had it. You need to protect yourself. Yeah, we yeah. have no structure in place. Right. No. Right. Yeah. I mean, I uh, think I think that we will see a lot of people just stay home. And I mean, sort of the fallacy at the, at the heart of, you know, we were talking about the protests earlier that like you don't just reopen the. You just don't reopen the, the the economy. You don't just flip a switch and everyone's back in businesses. I mean, people are not going to go unless there's trust, unless there's testing, unless it's sort of a scaled uh, step-by-step approach. And so we'll see what happens in Georgia. I think some people will go out and go back to normal and people will get sick. But I think a lot of people will stay home. And, you know, maybe what will happen is those all those people staying home will mean that there it won't get super bad. And then both sides get to say, oh, we were right, you know, right, and, right, and we'll right, see right. because there just hasn't um, been I, By the way, I, I wanted to share with you guys something I heard on the news today that like a full closure would cost us about $4 trillion for a year. But keeping things going without a change would cost us $6 trillion mm-hmm. um, because more people would die. So it, again, right. w- with all of the protests and all the shit going on in Georgia and that and Las Vegas, let us remember that it will ultimately be cheaper if we continue a lockdown and open up responsibly when it's the right time. Nikki, I feel like you I mean, keep right. throwing facts in. Like, um, <laughs> like facts you- and science is going to play a part in our reopening. And I love that about you. But yeah, was there a Google Doc that we didn't get shared on or something? Because you just seem to have a lot of actual information, whereas we're just sitting in our respective closets saying stuff. I know. It's like, no, it's like the case that I always make about like, you know, we've made the case about immigration a million times. Immigration actually lifts wages across the board for immigrants and non-immigrants. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we should want immigration because it's a net benefit. Each one immigrant creates something like 1.8 jobs or something like that. I'm butchering the number. I get, it's like, yeah, these things which are like, hey, 
like free market capitalists, the numbers indicate that you should love immigrants and that you should support a lockdown. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's just fucking, I know, talking into the wind. Um, although, you know, Mitch McConnell, I hear, loves fake the nation. So maybe this is the moment that just changes his mind on everything. <laughs> this is it. All right, you guys, let us move on. Can I say something completely to- random very quickly? Please do. Um, Jody, I don't know if you're a fan of Star Trek, uh, but every time I look at your picture, you're wearing the outfit that the original Captain Kirk, William Shatner, with the, the same color shirt with the... With the, and I keep being like, is that a Star Trek? And then I'm like, oh, no, no. So that's not related at all. But this- you, yes, you nailed uh, his outfit in the first season of the original Star Trek. So I Good just want to wanna and say. Which- did he also have a terrible mustache uh, in the first season the of Star outfit. Trek? It's the outfit. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. You guys, you know, you want to know something ridiculous is that my husband was growing like basically a beard for the last month and he shaved it for the first time the other day so he's had this beard for a month he shaved it for the first time the other day and the baby was like who the fuck are you (laughs) was like very scared of him for like a full day very suspicious of this man that had entered into our house she was just like i don't get it who is this guy where's my dad with the hair on his face it was like very adorable well when i when i first shaved down to this mustache which was pre-quarantine by the way but i've kept it rolling um but i went and i woke up my daughter who's who's two and a half uh and she wakes up and she looks up at me and she points at, at my face and goes why did you do that to yourself? <laughs> which, which is the most grammatically complex sentence she's ever uttered in her life. That's amazing. And it was like, oh my God. You okay. inspired a and full it, sentence. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was a kid, my dad, my dad has had a mustache my entire life. But when I was a kid for like three weeks, he shaved off his mustache and I could barely talk to the man. I was like six or something. And I was like, I don't accept this. I don't like it one bit. I was so mad about it. And now I understand why it does. It's like you you feel like there's a stranger in your house. It's just like different. Yeah. Kids and change. They don't like it. Uh, (laughs) Guys, breaking news here at Fake the Nation. Um, All right. Let us move on to topic number four. Tiger King, you guys. Oh, my God. So Tiger King is a Netflix docuseries. I don't even fucking need to explain what it is because I'm sure you've already seen it. But the show averaged 19 million viewers in its first 10 days, making it one of the most watched Netflix shows ever. And I mean, those were just like the early numbers. I don't know what the fucking numbers are now. They're probably much bigger. Also, do you Um, trust Netflix's numbers? No, well, this was like Nielsen reporting Netflix's numbers, but I also don't know if Nielsen gets accurate. You know, I don't know. Who knows? You're the one with uh, all the stats. I don't know stats. how Neil- yeah. Nielsen works with Netflix. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm the one with facts, you guys. Um, so first of all, like, Leah, can you describe the show? And just describe the show real quick for listeners, because I want to figure out why it's become such a huge cultural phenomenon. First off, I would like to describe my dedication to Nagin and Fake the Nation, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, Nagin emailed and said, have you watched Tiger King? And I had not um, because I usually strict stick to a strict uh, a BBC murder mystery or mm, a fantasy yes. with uh, swords and spaceships. But um, 
I said, you know what? If Nagi- there are there are Lord of the Rings posters in the apartment she's sitting in. I just want all the listeners to know that. Go ahead. Uh, there's also capes and fake ears if I need to reenact. But I. <laughs> So I said, Nikki, and said, can you at least watch one? And I said, you know what? I'm going to watch the whole thing. Um, so I feel, <laughs> and I'm really glad night. I watched the whole thing because the first episode is an entirely different tone, um, I would argue, than the rest of it. You know, the first episode, mm. it, 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 you almost, you know, I don't want to give anything away. I don't know. Are we doing spoilers? But I don't know if you got, I guess let's, it's okay. Let's spoil because if you haven't watched and you want to watch it, then skip this segment. Okay. There, there. Fair. Um, so you said, what's the, so the pre, there, the Tiger King is a man named Joe Exotic who owns or owned a uh, large cat uh, refuge, but he is also breeding uh, large cats, which side note, I've been to one of these in Florida. Um, did you go to the famous one? I went to one Florida, called, I was in Jacksonville in the- for a gig and I read about this. This was a few years ago. Uh, it was a big cat reserve. It was called the Caddy Shack, C-A-T-T-Y. And Got you. it was for people who had bought tigers and then realized, oh, I can't take care of a tiger. <laughs> and so they set up this big, it was like in the, in the, you know, swamps basically. And I went there and I don't know what I imagined, but it's just tigers where they were putting <laughs> people. That is what I would have imagined, Leah. But I mean, in your mind, it's going to be like a, like a, like a nature reserve. It's going to be like this huge right. reserve. And then it was literally this couple who was just keeping tigers um, that people had bought and then realized they were incapable of taking care of them. And then they were putting them in this swamp area. So I, you know, you're so shocked at the whole idea that people are like, I should have a tiger. Um, I know I've never, I am just really, I have, I don't see the appeal. Like I get the idea. I like, I want to go on a safari one day and see them in the wild and blah, blah, blah. But like, I just, I've never seen the appeal of having a an animal that might want to eat you like in your home. <laughs> I mean, I just, I call me crazy, but it's not even, it's about so much more because the woman who, um, is coming, you know, has this feud with Joe exotic, Carol Baskin, you know, there's a whole thing that, uh, sort of implies that she killed her husband and that also that she has a refuge, but also she's profiting off it. And then there's this other man who like keeps a harem of women. There's so much more, which is why I think it grabs people's, um, hearts and minds. And so there's so many different discussions happening in the entire series that I watched in one night just for Nagin. And, <laughs> you know, uh, there, I feel like there's actually two characters that you're like, these are people that seem um, morally uh, I'm aligned with and they're just hard workers and they're trying their best. I also feel like had I watched this at the beginning of the quarantine, I would have been shocked. But at this point I, I, and you're watching all the protests and you're like, Oh, this seems, this seems in line with our country. Jody, what did you think of Um, the show? I I think I would quibble with the idea that it grabbed people's minds. I just (laughs) felt like, look, no, Fair enough. Um, I mean, I, I watched this. I had a very similar experience that I think a lot of people did. And, and it's what makes it, you know, quote unquote, work for people, which is just like it keeps 
degrading itself. And at every turn, there was just something that's even more batshit crazy, uh, even more like, I can't believe these people. Um, you know, but I think that's like morally and also journalistically like a total mess. And it like doesn't provide you with anything that actually teaches you something about your life. And, you know, I think it's like, <laughs> yes. um, which, which, yeah, which the, again, the, like the documentary didn't teach us anything about but, our lives. But that's, that's, <laughs> I think that's my larger point, which is, you know, there are, there are world, there are types of TV and movies where it's fine to be like going for the degraded and like, you know, reality TV has done this. I think a lot of true crime has done this. And I think Tiger King is a, example of how those tropes and that sort of race to the bottom of like absurdity has bled into documentary. And I, you know, I make documentaries. Yeah. I care about documentaries. Yeah. I feel like the power of documentaries is that they show us something about our world and they help us think about our world and they should, you know, let us, and, and now we're, now we're starting to see this documentary form of just like one upsmanship or one downsmanship. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there's no, you know, there's no morally redeeming characters. I would argue here. Oh, I think there's, there's one. no one I can, Maybe one, sure. Um, which one? Wait, which the one? The young man who had it, his arm bitten off and it just wants to show up and help the animals. And, right. Right, but went right back to it. And so, you know, yeah. I mean, I would say, like, when, you're, when all of your central characters don't change, are awful people, and basically, like, the entire thing is built around just kind of, like, unveiling elements of their awfulness, um, you don't end up with something that I feel like... I don't know. You you miss out on the potential of the of documentary medium. Um, but you know, again, like this was basically reality TV, and it's this interesting thing where it's like, and and I mean, it was, and there was reality TV at the heart of this. Like he was doing a reality show, which is where they got a lot of their footage, and they clearly know how to speak the language of reality TV, and they clearly know how to put themselves in situations that um, that reality TV has primed us for you know more and more absurd situations um but you know to think of this as a documentary that's where my like little pretentious part of my documentary brain gets a little up in arms and says you know i don't know it just feels like a degradation yeah i agree with that it definitely feels like reality television yeah um it right i think okay so i i too would like to put on my snobby documentary <laughs> hat except for my <laughs> i've made three documentary features mm -hmm. and um Unlike Jody, I'm not a journalist and I don't like, uh, and my features were all like, one of them was more in the spirit of a documentary. Um, the other two are comedy documentaries, but I feel like, again, I, my challenge to myself, and I'm, I'm making myself sound like a fucking hero. I'm, I'm a piece of shit. But what I but my but the challenge I did have was like, can I make a documentary that's funny, a comedy doc in which people are um, in which you laugh, but you're laughing with people, not at people. And, you know, because, you know, like with the Muslims are coming and uh, which was a, a where we were trying to fucking get rid of Islamophobia <laughs> through comedy with Muslims. Um, and, and with my, the, my very first film, Nerdcore Rising, which was about nerds who rap, in both cases, I was dealing with either Americans who were anti-Muslim or, or I was dealing with nerds who, you know, a lot of people would have made fun of at the time, right? And so it would have been very easy for me to jump in there and be like, I'm just going to show these, show how nerdy these nerds are, you know? And that's how I'm going to get the jokes and you're going to laugh at them. 
Um, something like, or so, which would be something like a American movie for those of you who guys know, uh, who, who rem- know your documentaries from the past. Um, or, or something like a, you know, I could have done something like a Borat or a Michael Moore or whatever. And again, I, and I love those films. I, don't get me wrong. I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. But the challenge I think for me was, can I make something where th- these people are not the butt of the fucking joke, you know? And I think my my big problem with with shows like this and with reality TV in general is that people become the butt of the joke in a way that's so upsetting to me. Um, I don't want to laugh at people's pain and I don't want to be titillated um, by their poor choices, you know? Um, I find it so upsetting. I actually just found this entire experience is sort of, you know, there's things that I wish I had never seen and Tiger King is one of them, basically. It was, we forgot that this originally was about animals. (laughs) I mean, this is maybe was meant to be about the abuse of animals. Um, We we forget that um, what role uh, poverty, you know, plays in this, and I mean six cycles of poverty, generational poverty, what role that plays in in all of this. Um, People were, you know, we just saw people eating – expired meat off of a like a walmart truck of meat it's like i just it was so sad without the again without the context of why it is um that they may be doing that and that's a context that goes back generations right like it felt irresponsible in that way so much of it felt irresponsible i didn't find myself laughing at anybody i found myself in the beginning the first episode i wanted to be in joe exotic's corner because you felt like he turned to animals because of his father's homophobia and it was like this tragedy where he tried to kill himself and then had to like wear um you know braces and then he was taking in this is obviously in the first episode people who also felt like um, underdogs or outcasts and that he found himself and he was being this expressive and he sort of nursed himself back to health through animals. So in the beginning, it felt like this... Um, story of a person who was able to heal from the hatred in his home life and uh, express himself in Oklahoma, but then it wasn't about that at all. So besides the animal question of, you know, all the things happening with animals, it's also all these people came from tragic situations. I never once found myself laughing. I did find myself being like, this is insane, but... um, in the beginning, yeah, I mean, a whole la, la, story. Yeah. You were like, oh, and then he became obsessed with the money and the sort of himselfness. And but in the beginning, I felt like, you know, that's why it really changed tone. Because in the beginning, you're like, um, oh, this this man had to rebuild himself from a, a father who couldn't accept that he was gay. Right. No, and I and, and I don't mean laughing. And laughing is more about the stuff that I've done, I think being titillated or, you know, just entertained by the shit show that is their lives. You know what I mean? I find that very uncomfortable. But it's- um, and, and not to say that it wasn't a story worth telling, just that the, the things that were, you know, that the things that they focused on, um, I, I, you know, I felt like lacked a sort of larger social context that, you know, made you understand and what was made you understand. And I think, 
I think what's fascinating is that this went from, you're right, in the beginning, it seemed like this was a sanctuary for him because animals saved him, right? But then we see so many instances of animal abuse, you know what I mean? Yeah, really. From the very man who was claimed to have been saved by animals, right? It, but So by the end, you're just like, oh no, this guy doesn't give a shit about animals at all. And it's, um, and that was, I think, I think, the other thing that's, you know, the, the one thing that I will say that's interesting about shows like this is that we sit we sit in our bubbles here in New York City. I don't know anyone that owns a tiger. Um, that, you know, that bubble where you don't know anyone that owns a tiger. <laughs> and um, I I don't know any, you know, and I and I don't know very many people who are dealing with that that particular kind of poverty, which where, that leads you to work at a place like that for no money. I mean, that's the, the, one of the stories of this documentary is how little everybody was paid. Um, When I was in college, I worked, I was thinking about this and it almost feels, I worked at a place where they paid us $150 a week and we had to work seven days a week and they were very long days and I stayed the whole time and I didn't leave. And it made me think about this because I was like, why didn't I leave? You know, I was exhausted. I could bear, I wasn't saving money from it. You know, you're just getting by. And it's sort of like you become, you get so wrapped up in it that you're like, I'm responsible to this whole community. I have a place here. I have to stay here. You know, it's just like staying in it. And it's yeah. funny because, again, what the entire series says to me is we need a social safety net for people. <laughs> and like, literally, for me, always comes back to that. Because if these people had a social safety net, they wouldn't feel beholden to and imprisoned by these jobs that are actually not real jobs, you know, because in that they don't pay. Um, I don't even know how they got away with paying those rates. They they violated all of the rules of minimum wage. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like what? Um, But uh, but that's but I think that's part of what we're learning is um, for me is like, again, none this this would not be a story. These people would not be beholden to these jobs and wouldn't wouldn't even be brainwashed by them um, if it wasn't for the fact that we don't have a social safety net in this country. I mean, I think this is ultimately on the filmmaker um, to do what we're describing here, take in whatever way, take half a step back and provide some of the context. Um, And I think it's a sort of, sometimes it's a cop out to do a film like this and say, oh, we're just going to let people tell their own story. It's going to be good. You know, I found myself partway through being like, wait a minute. And you kind of see him every once in a while and you see that he's interacting and he, you clearly see that he wants to be in it, but then he also doesn't sort of take on the responsibility of being part of it. And so I think there's just a lot of the problems lie in the, the filmmaker himself and his role um, because he found a bunch of characters who are so practiced at telling their own story are so good as people are more and more about knowing what makes for good content. Um, And it's that presents a challenge for any documentary filmmaker. You then have to then put structures around that. Cause I think, you know, the question of what is authentic, what is an authentic look at people's lives uh, is, is, is like, a, is really, really tricky these days. Um, any final thoughts, Leah on Tiger King? Like, would you recommend people watch it? I mean, I, I wasn't going to watch it. I watched it because it was homework and yeah. <laughs> 
you know, it felt like really good to be able to have something during this time of uh, Corona to have somebody say, do this. And then yeah. you're like, I can finish that. Um, right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's not. I'm glad to play that role in your life. I'll, I'm happy to give you random homework assignments <laughs> throughout the week. It, it wouldn't have been something that I would have watched on my own. Right. Yeah. For the reasons I, that I Jody only, said where it, you know, it really felt like. Well, um, if I, yeah, if I could undercut myself a little bit, I will say like I ripped through it. I It was like super easy to watch, you know, and it made me think and, you know, at some level like easy to watch and makes you think a little is a pretty good uh, checklist for a piece of content. So, you know, I will say like I think people should watch it just because it's, you know. It made me you, you feel like I should up my outfit game. I'm going to tell you that right now. That's true. <laughs> That's why I did <laughs> I all this today. Outfits. I was like, usually I just ask Nadine, I wear all black. and <sighs> But I was like, I, people are out there living their life and I should uh, p- put a hat on and some uh, glitter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will say one thing as someone who's, you know, has made documentaries, I do it in audio and so forth. But, you know, I, I got the same feeling when I watched Wild Wild Country, which we, we didn't bring that up, but I think they're related yeah. in many ways. Um, but like, oh, my God, just to be handed a story that has all these crazy twists and turns and then everyone was filming everything all the time is just like what a treasure Gold. trove. Um, right, and so, right. you know, it's like I would love to encounter a story like that. Um, you know, most of my experience has been like just killing myself to find any audio or any content um, or, you know, like foying deposition tapes in order to get stuff. And here it's just like, here, here's like hours and hours and hours of, of footage from every possible scene you could possibly uh, want. And it's like, you know, Wild Road Country was the same way. It's like, what a, right. it's, what a blessing to have people who are so narcissistic that they're just filming everything jo- all the time. You guys, Jody is begging you <laughs> yeah. for footage. Uh-huh. Uh, c- go to him with your documentary stories. Uh, he wants them so bad. Um, no, absolutely. I would say to people, <laughs> don't watch it. <laughs> Do not watch it. I, did not rip through it. I actually totally begrudgingly watched the last five of the seven episodes <laughs> because wow. I just felt like I had to be a part of the national conversation. And I was doing other, I couldn't handle seeing the animals that way at a certain point. I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle, you know, the poverty. I couldn't, I mean, I I, I, I can handle poverty, like in that I understand that it exists and I want to improve it. I just felt like I couldn't handle the way it was being told. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I found it really upsetting. And I'm just like, instead of spending those seven hours, um, I don't know, go donate blood <laughs> for something <laughs> No, I don't know what I don't know what you could do right now, but it's just um, I found it really upsetting. I mean, at the same time, people are eating out of, you know, Walmart trash cans. That is real. No, I know. And in that sense. Right. And in that sense, it's good that people know that and that millions and millions of viewers know that because millions and millions of people watch those documentaries. So there are good things about it. I also think they undercut themselves by having that ridiculous bonus episode, which I did not watch. I watched the first two minutes and I was like, oh, this is one of those bonus episodes where Joel McHale interviews all of the people on Tiger King in like a kind of watch what happens now type shit. Oh, I watched it. And to me... Oh, was it horrendous? I was actually very impressed with Joe McHale because he's able to say edgy comedic things that are like a little bit of a, while still, um, I thought he did a great job. No, and I think that he's funny and and I enjoy watching them and Community is one of my favorite shows. However, I just didn't, I I thought the idea of doing that to a, 
to a sh- to a series that should have the heft of a documentary. You know what I mean? Again, yeah. it just like de it just like you know it just delegitimized the show even well, further what it, to have that kind of a. Setup. It pointed out how much more like a reality show it was because people were like, "That right. wasn't even yes. true about me. I wasn't on meth. Um, I'd been sober for five years." You know what I mean? It actually right. pointed out how the person filming it already came in with a very strong what had been left out and. On top of that, what made it interesting is they're they're all talking about Corona through the whole thing because they're all in their house. They're all social distancing. So it was an interesting thing to watch at the end of this Netflix right. as separate from the, um, but that being like, oh, we're all in our houses. These people in this show I just watched, they're in their houses. He's in his house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what, Leah? That's a much more reasoned and charitable view of that <laughs> final episode and I will uh, um, I will reconsider it but I will not watch it because I can't handle any more of the Tiger King phenomenon <laughs> <laughs> alright you guys uh, that's the end of the show I normally ask how do you feel but these days we're asking people what gives you hope Jody <laughs> man I have to go first um, I don't know <laughs> I mean you know uh, I'll say two things one is I have, um, you know, adopted a strategy in many ways of kind of, for most of my day, I just try and focus on what I can control. And I have to sort of really remember, like, there are certain things you can't control and certain things you can. And I have just, you know, whether that's hopeful or not, um, it's just been nice as a strategy to kind of realize, focus on the thing in front of your your face. Um, right. The other thing that's given me a little bit of hope is, is you know, this new show that I'm doing, which is looks at sort of historical moments. What's it called uh, again? One it's called more This time, Day in Esoteric Political History. You know, we're looking back at a lot of smaller, sometimes moments from, from political history, but ones that have lessons for now. And I think that at some level, when you just look to the past and you say, we got through it. And that's not to discount how hard it was then and how hard it is now, but I just think there is some, at some basic level, there's some comfort to look to the past and just say, this too, you know, this too shall pass. It helps oh you re- God. remember that. Oh my God. My dad has been forwarding me, you know, he's a man of forwards and uh, mm-hmm. he's been forwarding me a bunch of these um, images from the Spanish flu sure. of like people wearing masks. And that's really hopeful. Yeah. I find that very, you know, in the same way of just like, oh, yeah, like in we've gotten over some shit historically. Uh, so we'll get over this as well. Leah, what makes you hopeful? Um, I'm very hopeful. You know, I can be I'm definitely cynical and I recognize that there are some mean spirited people out there. But I do feel like it's a higher percentage of people who are banding together in um You know, when you were talking earlier about people believe in the government in Sweden, I think that people in America, more than the people who don't, believe in the doctors and nurses and first responders and grocery store workers and delivery people. And they really are focused in trying to stay inside and do the best they can to help those people pave the way to get in front of this. And um, that gives me hope. Lovely. Um, also the 7 p.m. cheer, do it every night, feel really good about yeah. it. Um, it, it, every night I'm like, oh, we're all still here. There we are. I hear us. It's great. Um, okay. 
I want for the people of Faith the Nation to be able to follow you and all the things you do. Um, Jody, one more time, where do they find the new, your new podcast? Uh, it's from Radiotopia. It's called This Day in Esoteric Political History. I host it with a great uh, historian, Nicole Hemmer, uh, and we come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So you can find that wherever you get your podcast, thisdaypod.com. And what's your Twitter there, Jody? Uh, I'm at Jody Avergan with a, with a Y, and then you will probably mangle the last name, but you'll find me eventually. You'll find him. Uh, Leah Bonama. Where, what, let's remember, remind us about your podcast and how to find uh, it. My, I'm a co-host on the podcast called Were You Raised by Wolves? So that's, um, you know, Were You Raised by Wolves on uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or the website WereYouRaisedByWolves.com. And I am on Instagram and Twitter at L-E-A-H, B as in boy, O, N as in Nancy, N as in Nancy, E, M as in Mary, A. I would love to, I would love to be your Instagram <laughs> friend. Everybody. <laughs> Um, you guys know how to find me and all of the things I'm working on putting out some more free content for you guys online uh, right now we put out Third Street Blackout my last feature film um, it is now normally you have to pay to see it or be a part of things and instead we just put it out online to stream for free um, and you can get that at thirdstreetblackout.com slash stream that's th- 3rdst blackout.com slash stream so thanks for people who've been watching watching it and sending me a lovely message. That's so great. Um, and if you feel like tipping the filmmakers, uh, proceeds from that is going to go to the Actors Fund, um, who's been, uh, they've been doing, oh my God, tremendous work. And they've, they've always done tremendous work. I really love the Actors Fund. So um, help us get them some more money by enjoying a movie. Uh, that was a SAG movie. Um, and let's see. Ooh, but what I really want to do, you guys, is I want to thank the people who make this show happen. Um, They're all working um, from home, (laughs) doing a fantastic job. I want to thank our producer, Anita Flores, our talented audio engineer, Andy Christens. Gabby Alter wrote our theme music. Lily Fleshler helps with research. And you guys, we love to hear from you. Send us your feedback topics we should be chatting about, guest ideas you might have. You can leave us a voicemail at 347-770-4981, or you can drop us a line at comments at fakethenation.com. If you like what you hear, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps more people find the show um, and uh, don't forget to sign up for Stitcher Premium where you get episodes of Bonus The Nation I believe both Jody and Leah are on different episodes of Bonus The Nation so you'll be hearing their voices alright thank you and until next week 